Before we get to this week's episode, there's a new series in town that everyone's talking about. We Own This City. We Own This City is a high-intensity cop drama centered around the Baltimore Police Department's Gun Trace Task Force. Now, they're responsible for keeping crime and drugs off the street, but of course, there's internal corruption and plenty of plot twists also at play. Starring John Bernthal and from the writers of The Wire, it is not one to be missed. That's We Own This City. All episodes available to stream on now. Plot twists. We're obsessed with them. In film, life and love, they turn up everywhere. It's that moment in a story where it takes you in an unexpected direction. I'm Tom, comedy and impressions lover. And I'm Fran, super fan of reality TV and rom-coms. And we're from now. And throughout this series, we're going to be interviewing TV and film stars, asking them all about their favourite plot twists, both on and off screen. So expect the unexpected, and hopefully some behind-the-scenes gems that you've never heard before. Contain spoilers. Obviously. Hello, I'm back. She's here, officially married. Normality can resume. Uh, normality and formality, because I thought, you know, we could do a mid-year review. I think we need to you know, get back in the office and do this properly. Oh, God. Literally, I've just had the most wonderful, relaxing hiatus and we're straight into a mid-year review. Strengths and weaknesses. Got it. Go yeah. on then. Hit me up. Strengths. You've persuaded a man to marry you. Art of persuasion. <laughs> I'll give you that. I've done well there. I rate yeah, myself well... highly on that regard. I'm glad you do. But weaknesses. Yeah. Lack of attendance on the podcast. Hold on, I can't have a strength of going off and getting married and then a weakness for not being here. Your strength has become your weakness. <laughs> this, is far, <laughs> this is far too complex for my return, Tom. Far too complex. Well, we are doing this sort of skit because it's in tribute to The Office, the UK office. And our guest this week is the co-creator. Yeah, that scene that we probably terribly tried to recreate there <laughs> yeah. was the was the big Keith appraisal scene which is probably one of my personal favorites I think it's the best one there but yeah Stephen Merchant co-creator and star of The Office is our guest this week I can't wait to speak to him and he became super famous from the roots of his podcast Tom yeah A fellow podcaster started out in XFM and with Carl and Ricky and then goes and writes The Office becomes a smash hit wins the BAFTAs and just goes on from there and it's probably time to point out that we've actually had two out of three of them on the podcast now. So we've just got Ricky Gervais to just go. Just waiting for Ricky. The Holy Trinity. Hasn't answered our calls. That's fine. Um, <laughs> but no, Stephen Merchant, he is such a talented entertainer. And he's done so much across his career from acting, from writing to directing, stand up. One I didn't know is that he co-created Lip Sync Battle. I didn't know that. And Lip Sync Battle is one of my biggest YouTube holes that I get caught up in. Have you got a favourite particular scene? Probably Channing Tatum doing Beyonce. Mm. It, oh, it's just epic. Or Tom Holland as Rihanna. That was pretty strong. So good. So good. And there's so many things that we've loved them in. Extras. I mean, all of that is on now at the moment. And that diversity as well. Stand Up, Hello Ladies. He did that tour. Mm. He, did, he directed the film Fighting With My Family with The Rock. And of course, he's got his new series, The Outlaws. And this is a pretty cool series because it's clever in that it strikes a really great balance between like high intensity drama, which you know that I love. And the <laughs> next minute you're crying with laughter. It's yeah. so smart. 
It's got a really great balance. And the premise of the series, for those who haven't yet watched it, is that seven complete random strangers are doing community service and they've done loads of different crimes and they're all thrown together. And you just watch it unfold because at the heart, they're all just people looking to connect, but obviously from these hugely different walks of life. And that's sort of why it allows for such brilliant moments of comedy because they are so different. But then actually, I'm going to say, Fran, there's a bit of a message of unity and we need that right now. Combined with fits of giggles. And fits of giggles. And Christopher Walken. <laughs> so what more do you need? What more do you need? Well, we've got plenty to discuss with the man himself. Here is Stephen Merchant on Plot Twist. Well, Steve, on a, on a podcast from the past, when you'd be introduced, we'd say award-winning writer and, and graduate of the University of Warwick. But I feel like now perhaps we're at a stage where we'd need to... Can we say national treasure? Are we getting close to that? Is that... <laughs> My dream is to be a national treasure. I don't know at what point you're officially announced as such, but certainly, um, yeah, that would be my dream, is to be a national treasure. I mean, my main career focus at this point is to make sure I'm in the um, in-memoriam section of the BAFTAs. You know, where they sort of, they show everyone that's died that year and everyone kind of just does a sort of just a little ripple of applause. And as long as I make it into that, then I feel like my career has been successful. I mean, there'd have to be some sort of disaster for you not to be, surely. Well, I think the only reason is that you just get forgotten, isn't it? I mean, my hope is I'm not. It's not going to be in the next Baftas. So, you know, so assuming <laughs> that I too. have another good, uh, good, you know, few years ahead of me, I just want to make sure you haven't been forgotten. Well, that's fair. Have you got the keys to the city of Bristol? I haven't got the keys to the city of Bristol. I was hoping that when I went back to make the Outlaws, that they would um, have a ticker tape parade and an open top bus for me, but um, they didn't. Although that was during COVID, so I can only assume they couldn't get it together because of the lockdown restrictions. I like to think yeah, that otherwise, <laughs> otherwise there would have been. I didn't realise, I was looking at it, there's a lot of great people that, you know, obviously Banksy, who was referenced in The Outlaws, of course. Um, a lot of great people from Bristol. You know, we've had Maisie Williams on the podcast, John Cleese. Yep. Apparently Cary Grant, is that true? Cary Grant, born Archibald Leach in Bristol. And my grandmother, who knew, no longer with us, sadly, but she used to work with Cary Grant's father in a, in a boot factory. Um, she would wow. often mention this in passing. And she would always, she's one of those women who um, would always speak very quietly if she was revealing some insider information, as though the neighbours were listening in. <laughs> but I remember many times she would say, oh, yeah, I work with Cary Grant's father. Oh, he was better looking than Cary. Better looking than Cary he was. Good looking man, didn't say much. Quiet man. And um, so, yeah, and also Bob Hope uh, lived in Bristol briefly. Um, really? He wasn't born there, but he lived there briefly when he was very young before emigrating to the States. And he was a big comedy hero of mine growing up. So, um, yeah, there has been some... Uh, there's been some good people come through Bristol. I mean, he is, in, certainly in the US terms, he is a national treasure. Oh, my was. goodness, yeah, yes, absolutely. Yeah. I want to ask you some random questions, if I can. I usually like to start just by throwing a few random ones out there, just to kind of get away from what you perhaps typically get asked, you know, get to know each other a bit. The first one is, what is something you'll never get tired of doing? Well, I mean, at the moment, it's, it's online chess. <laughs> I actually love a bit of online chess. <laughs> you can play five-minute games... Um, you can play three-day games. You can play any number of games with complete strangers. And, you know, it's anonymous, so that's sort of fun. And I get... To, there's quite a lot of sledging that goes on. Like, for quite often, I'll be insulted by someone after a game if I've lost or made a, made a poor move. And you'll sort of get the equivalent, the kind of emoji equivalent of Nelson Muntz from The Simpsons. You'll get the kind of... <laughs> sort of version of that. And funny, what's really odd is when I get those insults from people who have office images as avatars i always think it's quite funny that they don't know who i am and they're just they're 
That's amazing. And, um, and yet they've got sort of Dwight Schrute from the American version of The Office as their little picture. So, yeah, I, I love a bit of online chess. It's, I find it quite sort of meditative. You know, you, you sort of zone out a bit. bit of escape, you know? yeah. Well, yeah, because you, in that five minutes you're playing, you, you're just not really thinking about anything else except, you know, pawns and rooks. Yeah. And it's quite yeah. sort of, it's quite, um, quite nice. Totally present. Yeah. Yeah. In the moment. I did do, as the opening, I should say, I'm, I'm very familiar with your previous podcast work, The Ricky Gervais Show. I absolutely adore it. And there are a few stories on there. And, and also there's some recent stories that have come out um, about you and a Croatian doctor. Um, right. And I just wondered, what is, what's been your worst holiday experience? It's been my worst holiday experience. Because we know about Ipanema Beach and the trunks coming down. And Yes, yes. That was quite uh, distressing, wasn't it? I'm fairly lucky. I mean, I, I, I actually haven't been on a lot of holidays for a long time. In fact, I'm going on my first holiday quite soon. In fact, I probably shouldn't say that because people have realised my house is empty. Um, <laughs> yeah. Drowning off of Ipanema Beach was, was obviously sort of alarming. But I've been quite lucky. I'm trying to think. I've never had one of those sort of showing up and the, and the hotels, a construction site kind mm. of experiences. I mean, my early holiday experiences when I was with my family were always coloured by the fact that my dad was is quite a cheap man. You know, he's quite careful with cash. So it was always quite stressful because <laughs> there's lots of sort of weight. Like I remember we used to go to South Devon every year and he had a little sort of um, a little sailing boat. But in order to keep the sailing boat on the beach for the week that we were there, he had to pay a fee. And he wasn't, I'll be damned if I'm paying a fee. So he and I would have to sneak the boat onto the beach under cover of darkness <laughs> on sort of night. So night one, we'd sort of arrive and about midnight, he'd like, wake me up. We're off to the beach. <laughs> and, <laughs> and we'd go down there and we'd sort of roll this, this little sort of sailboat onto the beach and kind of, you know, and make it look like it's been there a few days. So throw some seaweed around the wheels and, you know, and, and, um, and then sneak off again. And then the next day we'd come to the beach and we just pretend to be holidaymakers, just looking for somewhere to sit. <laughs> oh, why don't we sit next to this this nice boat here? And then, yeah, at the end of the holiday, again, you know, uh, pack your bags, have a little doze, wake up, wake up, son, wake up. We'd have to go down and, and steal the, the boat back again, like sort of pirates. I mean, it was, um, yeah, so it wasn't, it wasn't a bad holiday. It's just funny that it's sort of, you know, your memories of those happy days are... <laughs> Yeah, coloured by that stuff. I like that. I'm interested to know this one. Who's on your Mount Rushmore of comedy? Blimey. Um, well, probably Cleese, John Cleese, who you mentioned. He was very formative for me because he, um, as you say, grew up uh, actually born in Western Supermare, but went to school in Bristol. And um, he was tall. He was a, a big influence on you, wasn't he? Growing big up? influence on me. And so I think he'd have to be on there. Who else would be on that Mount Rushmore of comedy? I mean, I think in terms of sort of stand up i don't think there's much that beats that first richard pryor live stand up yeah. movie special i mean i think it's sort of extraordinary and uh i was talking to someone about it the other day and it's the fact that he's you know it's a concert film and yet he just sort of wanders on and the light, the house lights are still up and audience members are still taking their seats and he just begins the show and the stage is kind of scrappy and there's none of that sort of production value that you associate with with concert films now and um there's still something about that which is just such a kind of tour de force, mm. um, and and a man who sort of has found his voice and is just you know and is just sort of unapologetically himself. So I mean those two certainly, and probably Bob Hope again, I, 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 because I, one of the things I loved about Bob Hope was his sort of film persona. His stand up I could sort of take or leave, but him as a screen actor, a screen comedian, 
was so funny to me because he played the sort of nervous, cowardly, but would-be ladies' man, you know? So, and it was such a great shtick that you see used later by lots of different comic actors, including myself. And so, like, in The Outlaws, I get to sort of be kind of nervously anxious around any of the crime that's going on, and that's all directly from Bob Hope. Um, and I think with someone like Bob Hope, when he lives to 100, he sort of became a bit of a dinosaur later and was sort of, you know, mm. and a bit kind of overlooked for being, you know... Um, all the brand, almost, I guess. Yeah, but but it was early, in his 30s and 40s, when he first is sort of in screen comedy, he's really kind of pioneering, I think, and very kind of, it felt very fresh, I think, to, to moviegoers at the time, because there was a sort of... He was very contemporary, you know, he sort of carried mm. himself like a modern man, you know, and he was sort of trying to romance women and he was trying to kind of live a, a sort of a contemporary life. And there was something about that that even as a teenager, I really, I really responded to. And then um, I didn't need to be a fourth face on the Mount Rushmore of comedy, wouldn't there? And uh, goodness, oh, blimey, who would that be? I think maybe it would have to be someone like, um, like Homer Simpson. I think just because he's, okay, such, a, he's such a perfectly yeah. formed comic character isn't he you know and he's sort of an icon such an immaculate comic creation you know i think with comedy characters you just you want to the dream is that you have a character in which you can imagine how they'd think in every situation and i feel like all of us know exactly how homer would react in any situation <laughs> so yeah i'd stick him up there as well yeah something universal about that listeners of the podcast will be sick of me saying it but i, I probably agree with richard Pryor. i have don rickles oh yeah he is good. Yeah, I think yeah. if I'm going to have an old-school comic, though, I'll have um, Bob Hope. But then I'm losing out on uh, Groucho Marx, so I'm already anxious about my decisions. Um, plot twist. What would be your standout plot twist moment in your life so far? You know, the notion of unexpected, perhaps the biggest standout plot twist for you. Professionally, personally? It's funny, actually, because I remember watching the trailer for the film biopic about the notorious B.I.G., you remember there was a film a couple of years back and it was um, yeah, yeah, yeah. about the Biggie Small's life story. And the trailer was all kind of like, um, he's the greatest rapper in the world, notorious. And then it would like flash back and you'd see like the young Biggie and it'd be kind of like being chased by the cops. And then his buddy would be like, you know, give me the gun and the drugs because you're one of the greatest rappers who's ever going to live and, and I'm going to take the fall for you. And it's like, great, don't blow this opportunity. And then it's like, you know, and then he kind of meets Lil Kim and then it's like this and then there's like more crime and police cars and like helicopters. And then, you know, it's like, um, you know, uh, I'm my name's Puff Daddy. And, he goes, hey, and they high five and then it's kind of like, and he's like, oh my God, Notorious has been shot. Notorious. And I was like thinking about like the, the trailer of my life would be kind of like, <laughs> Mum, Dad, I'd, I'd quite like to go to university and, and study hard, you know, and, and, and get some good uh, grades and things. So I've, you know, don't um, blow my my future um, career opportunities. Yeah, sounds good, son. Yeah, we'll we'll help you with that. Oh, I'm here at university. This is good. I'll do just work hard, probably. Yeah, that's about three years. That <laughs> good. I've done that. That's great. Um, really like to get into comedy, but it should have something to fall back on. I suppose so. I got a job at, at um, a radio station. Oh, I've met Ricky Gervais. Hey, Ricky, how's it going? Yeah, nice to meet you. Um, we should do a thing about people. Um, Working office. That sounds good. Yeah. Oh, look, we've won a ton of BAFTAs. That that's great. Cheers. <laughs> that would sort of be the. And you'd be like, oh, that all sort of went quite swimmingly. And there wasn't, you know what I mean? There wasn't, there wasn't any kind of, <laughs> as a sort of narrative arc. It's not very dramatic. It's all sort of quite supportive. Parents worked hard, kept my head down, and uh, and it all paid off. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's sort of. I haven't had to overcome, you know, childhood traumas. I mean, look at Brett Richard Pryor again. You know, his mother, yeah, I think, yeah. you know, that he grew up in a brothel. And I think his mother was a sex worker and things. And obviously he set himself alight with 
freebasing cocaine, and he obviously had to overcome racism and prejudice in the 60s and 70s. So, you know, that life story would be interesting, but <laughs> but mine's just, eh, some stuff happened what, what, and it was all fine. <laughs> I mean, was there a point, though, maybe with The Office, that after a few months of it coming out, going into the second series, that life did change, that it did suddenly go to a new level and... You know, say then you do get the BAFTAs. You know, life is never going to be the same again, I suppose, after that, given the sort of the popularity of the show and what it enabled you to do afterwards. I, I think you're right, but I think it all happens quite incrementally. I don't mean that it didn't happen quickly. I just mean that I feel like, you know, probably if you're, um, uh, you know, you maybe audition on The X Factor, right? It's a big Saturday night show. No one's ever seen your face. You come on and you sing Bridge Over Troubled Water beautifully and everyone's on their feet. And the next day, people are like, wow, that guy was amazing, right? And that is a sort of overnight success in which I think you'd imagine you could feel your life changing. But I think for for us, it was sort of, you know what I mean? It was just like we write it and then we make it and then we put it out and there's sort of no one's really interested. And then it slowly takes on a life it's of its own time. and begins to kind of find an audience. And and then we do another, you know? And so it's, again, it, it it's not that I wasn't, excited by the opportunities that came it just it just they they felt sort of gradual and so each one wasn't as big a shock as you'd perhaps think and also you just acclimatize very quickly so I remember when we first went to America to the Golden Globes and they picked us up from the airport in a limo me and Ricky were like kids like we're in a limo this is unbelievable look there's free water (laughs) and then um and then the next day they come and they bring the limo to drive you to the actual Globes we're like this limo is not as nice as yesterday's (laughs) <laughs> you know and you sort of you just acclimatize so quickly to that stuff so i think it's it's probably only now that i look back you know when i'm in discussion with someone like you and you think oh wow yeah that was kind of crazy and i was young and my god we were suddenly at the baftas and then we won like we won a bafta every year for three years and then we haven't i haven't certainly i personally I haven't won a bafta since so it's like at the time it seemed easy i guess i'll just keep winning baftas now that's what i do <laughs> But there's only later when, when you're sort of been in the business 20 years, you go, actually, it's quite hard to win BAFTAs. So yeah. probably, yeah. So now looking back, it seems more sort of, I don't know, not necessarily impressive, but you know what I mean? More kind of monumental than it seemed at the time. Yeah. I've titled the next section Multi-Talented because I, I saw that you'd put that you, you haven't necessarily specialised in one thing. You've done a lot of different projects. Even last year, you you play a, a, a you know drama role, the serial killer, and you know it was a fantastic performance. And but you, yeah, you you have mixed it up over the years. You could say a jack of all trades, master of none, which I've got to say, Steve, utter bollocks. It's not it's not true. Oh well, um, that's that's nice of you to say. But why is that? Is there is there a particular reason? It's just that you haven't been set on one thing, or has it just been the sort of opportunities that have presented themselves almost? Well, I don't know. I mean, I suspect that. You know, the fact you're doing this podcast suggests to me that you're probably a film and TV fan. And and I'm sure, like me, when, you know, I was too, or I am. And, and when you're growing up, my sort of, my fandom extended in all kinds of directions, right? So it's like I loved comedy and I loved sitcoms and I loved funny movies and I loved stand-up. But I also loved, you know, movies of all different stripes and I loved kind of art movies and I loved thrillers and I loved, you know, old movies and new and... and and I liked doing acting, but I also liked doing writing and I liked doing comic strips. I just I just was a fan of stuff in those kind of creative worlds. I ran a mobile disco and then later did some radio and I liked that too. That was fun. And and I suppose I just, all of it was kind of stimulating to me and enjoyable and I couldn't choose one of them. I just sort of wanted a, 
bit of everything. It's like, you know, I was like tapas. I just kind of, I just, <laughs> it was all exciting. And as I got to do a bit of all of it, I enjoyed it all equally in different ways. And so I've sort of been greedy in that regard, you know? And, and so consequently, you know, I, I, I haven't kind of pursued acting single-mindedly, but I've done enough to be quite good at it now. And I've sort of, you know, and each of the things I've done, I sort of, I'm always getting sidetracked and lured off down another path. So it's that consequently, it's my my anxiety is that I seem like I I fall through the cracks that that people you know that I'm not a national treasure because people sort of overlook me because they they're not thinking you know they sort of what does that guy do exactly? I, I actually am very proud of of the fact that I think certainly now Absolutely. having done this for twenty years, I think I do a lot of things pretty well, and mm. I'm quite proud of that fact. I'm quite proud of the fact that I've sort of you know that I've got quite a lot of strings to my bow. Yeah, you absolutely should be. You really should. And it must it must be nice that. Like you say, growing up being that sort of TV and film fan, that you can then do these guest appearances in something like The Simpsons or right. Modern Family. That that must be a pretty cool. Well, they're just that's perk, the thing. You know, they're just fun. You know, it's just yeah. The Farrelly Brothers asked me to do so. I did so. I did a film with the Farrelly Brothers, and and like you say, and then it's kind of come and do a voice for The Simpsons or Modern Family or you know, I did the Big Bang Theory because I'd never done a live studio yeah, sitcom yeah. before, and I thought, well. If you're going to do one, why not do, you know, the biggest in the world? And that was interesting. Just from, again, just watching how it works. Again, just being on the inside, seeing how the sausage is made is fascinating to me. Uh, that's, it's, I'm, I'm fascinated to watch the, to see the table read and then to see the writers go off and then rewrite the script. And then on the night you're doing the scenes and if they don't quite fly, they come in with another joke and you, you deliver a different joke, you know. It's fascinating. It's just interesting as a fan of stuff to see it. Yeah, see it's, it it's really cool. It's really cool. Let, let's talk about The Outlaws. Congratulations on this. I know it's had a lot of great feedback coming into Series 2. Do we have a date that's set for when it... Um, June 5th for the, uh, June 5th. For the UK viewers, yeah. How is this for you? Because you, you've done a lot of different aspects here. Uh, you know, you're directing, you're writing, you're starring in it. It must be pretty challenging to try and manage the whole thing all at once. Is that is that a fair thing? Very much so. And again, gr- greedy of me to sort of want to do a bit of everything. Um, and I directed three of the first series and I couldn't really do more than that. It was just, it was all getting a bit overwhelming. And so we had two other excellent directors who sort of um, did the rest of them. So uh, I think probably it would have been slightly easier had we done just two series, you know, one, uh, one year and, and then another the next year. But because of COVID, we ended up doing two series back to back. So we did like 200 plus days of filming, which is pretty That's intense, arduous right? for, for TV land. And, and you've got Christopher Walken. You know, right. You've got, yes. So again, you're looking after Christopher, treasure. making sure that he doesn't um, get COVID on my watch. <laughs> you know, every day you go into work and you think one of your leading characters might, you know, might die. It was like being in a real life squid game. <laughs> so that was jumpy. But um, But in terms of sort of doing a bit of everything, I think if I had to ultimately choose a lane, it would probably be the writing. Just because I think that's still mm. for me the most nutritious of what I do. It's the thing that's most stimulating and most rewarding, I suppose. And this was a very difficult show to do because it's you know it's trying to do, as you say, lots of different things, and it has thriller, and it's trying to do it's trying to be sort of funny, yeah. but but kind of dramatic and and sort of build all these characters, and it's quite intricate. The the plotting is actually perhaps more intricate than it seems, and so it's 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 that was quite a tough dive. Yeah, and also, I guess, because it's also like an ensemble cast, isn't it? It's not just about one central character. It's about the seven strangers that they are from different walks of life who are doing this sort of community service, if you will. That's right. Community payback. Yeah, I just, I, and I thought you had a really great balance between the sort of the comedy and the drama. 
well, there were certain you. bits. Yeah, because yeah, I think that, that's that's a difficult balance to get right, I guess. You know, because sometimes you can. I was hooked in at the end of the series, one particular character, and then suddenly you you know you punch the the community officer afterwards straight away, and it's like, oh, we're back in a comedy. Right, right, right. Yes. <laughs> well, I think that's also again goes back slightly to my influences, whether it's. Hitchcock films, which often had humour running through them, again back all the way back to the sort of those Bob Hope films, which were obviously much sort of obviously broad, but they often were, you know, kind of spy capers or crime capers, but with him sort of, you know, being very kind of funny in amongst very straight actors, playing it very sensibly around him, and I've always mm. liked that. And I also, you know, thinking back to the eighties films like Midnight Run and even Beverly Hills Cop, you know, and then. Um, and then even more recently, I think shows like Succession and The Sopranos, you know, often had really funny moments in them, even though there's a sort of darkness or there's a, mm. a drama to it. So I don't see those two things being mutually exclusive. I know some people feel that you, the, the tones can jar if you try to mix them. But to me, that's my experience of life, is that it can be funny and and uh, and then suddenly dark. And, and I created the show with a guy called Elgin James, who you know, grew up running with real-life gangs in Boston and ended up in jail. And yet he and I collaborated on this together. And, and, and you know, mm. and I, I don't know whether you know this, but I've done very little jail time. And the very fact that the two of us could sort of collaborate and, and pool our life stories, where I've got me kind of almost drowning on Ipanema Beach, you know, um, with my, you know, my trunks around my ankles, and him, you know, having to, to contend with life in jail. And the fact that both of us exist, you know, in the same world suggests to me that you know crime and the comically absurd do coexist uh in but real that, life. that can only but that can only benefit the storylines and the characters right that you'd have such different perspectives it kind of reminded me i guess with like john sullivan with only fools is that those sort of key characters the boy sees the mickey pierce the dell boys these are guys that they'd met i'm in, sure in, you know yeah you know it, 10 20 30 years before that's right like and I, said, I think there was a long tradition actually of i think that mix of comic and dramatic when I was growing up. So Minder of Wheeler's Enquette, you know, which I really f think of very fondly and I really like those shows. And I think they, they, they still to this day are very good shows. And I like that, that mix that they had, you know, they were certainly in the case of, of Wheeler's Enquette, sort of ensemble shows again. And, you know, and there was sort of sadness and sweetness and drama in amongst the laughs. And I, it was a very, quite a uniquely British mix, I feel. Mm. Yeah. So that was sort of the ambition for it. Tell me about some of the stories, because um, there are certain scenes. I think of Greg in the car with with the prostitute. These are actually stories that you or yeah, you know, I myself have not been tales. not ever been called no, not yourself. But no. Uh, <laughs> well, no that that instance was uh, I, I did I was reading about one of our other national treasures who I won't name for uh, the sake of the podcast. But um, you know he was caught, if you may remember, with a lady of the night in America. And uh, I was caught with her in a car. And I read somewhere, and I, whether or not it's apocryphal, I don't know. But but if it's not, then it's it's hilarious. And that's why I just uh, lifted it. Which is that uh, the reason he was caught was that he was, um, you know, he was receiving some oral pleasure. And uh, his foot kept pressing down on the brake pad of his parked <laughs> car. So the brake lights were flashing. And a passing police cruiser thought, hang on, that's a bit odd. And went in to investigate and, and caught him with... Um, with this uh, lady of ill repute. So um, that just seems such a funny, again, just such a kind of comic, <laughs> such a comic yeah, way of being life. fine. And again, I don't, yeah. I don't think I'd have ever come up with that if I hadn't read that somewhere. <laughs> I don't know whether I could get sued for stealing that. I don't know if someone 
has committed a criminal act in a foreign country <laughs> and can somehow lay claim to that yeah. from a copyright perspective. But uh, yeah, but there's a good example of of a, of a real life moment of sort of absurdity that for the people involved was obviously very dramatic and I'm sure very scary. <laughs> no, I love it. It's brilliant. Obviously, there was a lot of, I guess, when the show was announced and, and, the, and the cast, obviously a lot of focus on Christopher Walken. What was it like working with him? And also you took a, you took a trip to Stonehenge, is that right? We took was a trip, just yes. you and him? That's right. Well, uh, we discovered that he wanted to visit Stonehenge. You know, he's 78 years old, but there's still things he hasn't done on, on his bucket list, and that was one of them. So we um, arranged to go to Stonehenge. And um, we went over there, he and I. And he's a very quiet man, Christopher. He's very sort of quite reflective and doesn't, you know, he doesn't waste words. And so we were there for about 45 minutes before he said anything. And then um, eventually he just looked at one of the stones and he went, apparently the blue stones have healing properties. I was like, wow, it's like being with Yoda. I was like, wow, it's okay. And um, and he said to the lady showing us around, uh, can, I, can I touch one of the stones? And it was so typically British. She went, no. Definitely not. I'm like, oh come on, he's 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 an Oscar winner. He's come, you know, he's come all the way from America. He, he's been here, for, you know, what is it, five thousand years? You can let him touch one of the stones. We don't let anyone touch the stones. I'm thinking, what what do you mean you don't? What are you taking them in at night like garden furniture? People are going to touch the stones, and um, but she wouldn't let him. So Christopher had to had to leave, having not touched the stones. But he, he enjoyed it, and we spoke since about it, and it, I think we found it quite a sort of. I don't know if spiritual is the word, but it was quite a quite a moving. Maybe. Yeah, it was quite a moving experience. Yeah. And if you had told that young lad growing up in Bristol that one day he would visit Stonehenge yes. with the you know the Oscar-winning man who stuck a watch up his ass in Pulp Fiction, I would never have believed you. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh. Yeah, what was it? What was he like on set? Was he was he still is he still quite reserved? Or is he? Um... He's quite quiet. He's quite reserved. He's quite contained. But what's what the best thing is that you do hear these stories of older actors, very experienced actors who are sort of, you know, they're only, they only want to do one take and then they want to go back to the hotel by three and they're sort of, you know what I mean? Mm. And they're kind of, they've sort of lost the love of acting and so they, you know, sort of phoning it in. But there was none of that with him. He was, he was, he was always happy to be there on set and, and it would give you loads of takes and always happy to try something new. So you end up with loads of variety in the editing room always happy to, to stay there when he wasn't on screen but he need, he was needed off screen to to read his lines in for other actors he would always stay for all that stuff which again you know a lot of big starry actors will sort of you know famously kind of not do that but so he was he was still he became a team player really and that's the other thing i mentioned before about how quickly you acclimatize is there is that day one you're like oh my god it's christopher walken and day three it's like all right chris yeah, um, listen, uh, I'm out of cup of coffee yet, so sorry if I'm a bit grumpy. Um, you know, and he just, he becomes a work colleague very quickly. Yeah. yeah. I don't know whether it's exaggerated because of the accents that are around him, but he really does have one of the most iconic voices in TV and film history, doesn't he? It is quite, yeah. it is quite extraordinary. Um, well, apparently he doesn't pay attention to punctuation. That's what he says. <laughs> he just, he finds punctuation, commas, full stops, and so on. He finds them sort of they get in the way of, of acting for him. So he kind of ignores yeah. them, which is which is one of the reasons why he has that very kind of eccentric, almost yes. jazz-like way of speaking. Yeah, yeah. I want to ask about a plot twist person. Before we do, one of my favourite lines in the series, in the first series, and it made, I think it made me laugh more because I, I knew you were obviously behind the scene of writing it. 
I think it's with Eleanor Tomlinson when she uh, she turns to Greg, your character, and calls you a four-eyed fucknut. Right. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I just I did. I just it really just really uh, burst out laughing because it was just a thought that you you're also behind. behind well, we the sat there. Of it. We sat there trying to come up with insults for me because there's a string of them. At one point, she still calls me a, a haunted pencil. Um, what else does she say? Uh, what does she say? Like something like ETs. ETs. A stretched eater. I can't remember. Anyway, there are various pedo Harry Potter. That's another one. So there's various insults. So yeah, we sat around trying to come up with them, and um, people are always, I think, a bit too nervous to 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 to, to spitball them. You know, so they they're quite gentle. Yeah. Whereas wank sock with glasses. That was another one. So um, whereas I'm quite happy. You know, I don't mind being the butt of a joke. So uh, no, I find it quite fun coming up with that stuff. Oh yeah, I was re- really got to me. There were, like I said, there are those moments where you're quite drawn in, in, in like an emotive storyline or uh, scene, and then suddenly there's that kind of that one line, and it's yeah, it gets you good. Yeah, I mentioned plot twist person. Let me ask you about that. I guess a, a sort of unexpected inspiration. Any individual that would stand out for you? I have to credit my dad. I think with a a lot because he has a very good sense of humour. He's very funny. And he's also a fan like me. And he's sort of the reason why I discovered so much of the film and comedy that I grew up with, because he's the one that would, you know, sit me down and watch old Bob Hope movies, old Lauren Hardy movies. And then later we'd watch Blackadder together or whatever it might be. And so because I, he, was, he was always very funny and he, and, he, and he had friends who were funny and he was sort of, when they came to the house, I, they would banter and they would be kind of cheeky and they would be sort of, they would sort of joke at each other's expense. It, it, it created a climate in which that was allowed and that there was, do you know what I mean? And so it was sort of, yeah. it, 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 it dribbles in, doesn't it, I suppose? And you sort of, um, I certainly, so I think, I think that's, I don't know. I mean, it's not, a, it's not a kind of wildly unusual thing no, to have a father who's kind of, you know, or mother who's influential, but, um, but I think both my parents as well never said, you can't do this. They weren't. They didn't go. Oh yeah, you're going to be John Cleese. But they certainly never said, "Don't have a go." They all they ever said mm. was, "Yeah, try and have a job that you try and have something you could fall back on, an education or whatever it might be." But they never poo-pooed the idea of being creative, and they always were. You know, my 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 mum and dad drove me to my first stand-up gig. I wouldn't let them come in, but they they dropped me off. You know, and um, so how did that go? It went well. It went it went really very well. It was like a five-minute spot in Bristol. And so, you know, so they were supportive in a way that I know other people sometimes didn't have that. And they had parents who mm. were either just sort of, you know, detached from it or just sort of scorn on the idea. But they were supportive. I think we've, we've had a few people on this podcast where I think the parents didn't necessarily know the industry. Or maybe they did know the industry and they just knew how difficult it was to break through and therefore kind of almost dissuaded them saying, right. no, don't go down this route, you know, get a trade or you know, follow in the family business. So I think to be encouraged like that, you know, is it can only be a positive thing. I definitely think so. And I think it's also, I always feel that with schools. I mean, I think I felt with my school, it was just a slight feeling that, eh, I don't think so, mate. You know, there was just that air of kind of, it doesn't happen to the likes of you. Whereas I would, I would always encourage teachers, you know, I, you know, I'm sure many do now, but, um, but, but certainly that moment in time, it felt like, there was always this sense of sort of like they didn't want you to be disappointed in later life when it didn't work out. They were sort of doing it for mm. your benefit. So it's like, you may, I'd get a job down the NetWest, mate. That's probably better for you, isn't it? <laughs> Office manager. Yeah. So, uh, 
Yes, but my parents, no, they were they were behind me. Talk to me about those early gigs in comedy. Then you know, you say the first one went well. Did it? Did it stay that way? Did it? Did you build some momentum? Not really. I became a little bit of a cult comedian, I think, among other comedians for a while when I first did it because I was I was doing an act, and that kind of meta comedy is quite. Lots of people dabble with it. Perhaps at the time I hadn't seen it, so it felt fresh to me. But the, to me, I started. I found this shtick where I um, the joke was that I thought I was this really successful comedian from Bristol, and I was very arrogant about it. And I would come on stage and I and I, and I would keep promising an act that never arrived because I was immediately <laughs> angry by I didn't think the applause was big enough. You know, I didn't like the look of someone in the audience. I felt they were kind of they weren't kind of engaged with it enough. And so I would keep going off and coming on again, sort of making demands of the audience. And then I would read reviews that I'd had, you know, um, like, you're lucky to have me. And I would sort of read these reviews. So I, it was a fun, really fun thing. And you got, got about 20 minutes or so. And when it went well, it was an absolute blast. It was really mm. fun. And the audience got it. And I loved doing it. And it was really enjoyable. But when I, when it didn't go well when the audience didn't get the joke and they just thought I was a real arrogant comedian from Bristol, <laughs> I was fucked because I had no yeah. act. You know, I just, I, 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 yeah. the joke was I didn't have an act. And so, yeah, I remember being in Exeter doing a gig and someone actually shouted, silence, the audience just in silence. And then one guy shouting taxi for the comedian, which never, I never thought that that really yeah. happened, but it did. And the only person who liked it was the waitress. She said that uh, she saw a lot of comedy and so she enjoyed it. She, she got the gag, but no, and I remember phoning my agent at the time and saying, you've got to get me out of this. I can't, I, I'm not doing any more of these. This is. This How is old were you at that point? Early 20s. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a tough old thing to do. I, I think like the first few gigs, I just, I've never done it myself, but I always imagined it would be terrifying. Well, I think what's, it, one thing I would say is it, it is easier doing it when you're not known because there are no expectations and you can just sort mm. of crawl away and lick your wounds. But mm. I stopped doing it for a long time and then I went back to it once I was more well-known and that old act, I couldn't, right. And that old act I couldn't yeah. really use anymore. And so by building a new act, it was hard because I'd been out of it for so long and I was, I wasn't sort of match fit. And so that was more stressful in a way because you were sort of doing it in the glare of, yeah. yeah, that's right. In the glare of expectation. Would you do it again? No, I'd like to. Yeah. I want to do some more. I just, um, I just haven't found the time. It's just, it's a bit like exercise. It's very easy to not do it. <laughs> And just yeah. sit on the couch instead, you know? Yeah. I was meant to do a run this, uh, earlier this afternoon, and then I thought, well, no, I've got to prep for Steve. I've got to... Yeah, exactly. There's always an excuse, <laughs> yeah. isn't there? Yeah, there's always an excuse. I've done a few references to Carl and, and the podcast in the past, and I'm sure you get asked this all the time, but do you have a particular favourite Carl story or a particular moment, the funniest Carl moment for you? Well, I mean, I think, again, it's it's it to me, the the... I suppose you could call it, call it a plot twist in some sense, in that I, it was when well, we... Carlin himself is. Well, that's what I mean, is that we, obviously, <laughs> when we first met Carl, he was just there to press buttons and play CDs for us at a radio station. And then we started asking him questions. And some of the early ones, I remember one of the early ones, I think, was um, him saying something like, what were those things in that film Gremlins called? Well, Gr Gremlins, Carl. That's clues in the title. And um, and then he told us that story of a horse in the house. They had some yeah, neighbours yeah. and they had a horse in the house. Yeah. And then, But that wasn't the point of the story. That was just in passing. He was on the way to another story and he just said, oh, the neighbours and they had a horse in the house. Anyway, and we were like, hey, what about the horse in the house? And I think those are the ones that stick in my mind because they're the ones that where it felt 
hang on, who's this guy? <laughs> like, what have we got here? What have we been handed here? This treasure trove yeah. of uh, untapped gold, you know? And so, um, so those are the ones I remember most fondly because it was sort of the, it was like discovering Carl, if you like. It wasn't like mm. we knew him and we, he was a funny friend and we were keen to get him on the radio. We were sort of, we were discovering him as the audience was. Yeah. I bet you couldn't believe your luck in some ways. Of course not. No, I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's gold, isn't it? Absolute gold. You could, I mean, you couldn't have designed it more perfectly. I find it's, it's finally interesting now that sort of, um, I was going to say character arc. Obviously, it's Carl's a real life person. It's not a character. And from chatting to him, it's very clear. But to see him now doing the sort of the TV shows and stuff, and uh, I think he probably, if you go back 10 years, he'd been very reluctant to do that. But now we're seeing him in ITV dramas as a policeman. You right. Know? It's, quite, yes. it's quite incredible. Well, it is incredible. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, he, um, I don't know what people's perception is of Carl now. I mean, do they, you know, the thing about Carl is, you know, if you've spoken to him, you know, he's, he's cleverer than he seems. Yeah. It's sort of hard to <laughs> yeah. quantify it in a way, you know, yeah. it's um, like sometimes he's, he's saying something idiotic and sometimes he's saying something really witty and he knows he is. Yeah. And it dances quite profound. quite profound, and he dances between those different things, like so many of us do. Yeah, no, he's he's extraordinary. Just going back to the Outlaws, obviously, series two is coming out. Can we expect more beyond that? Is that something that you're you're looking into in terms of, I suppose, beyond series two? Is it what, what's next on the well on the radar for you? Well, with series two, there was an old writing adage that I got taught years ago, which was that you you with a sitcom or with a with a drama, you chase your characters up a tree and then you throw rocks at them. And I felt like in series one, we chase them up the tree. In series two, we're really throwing rocks at them. And so in series three, if we do it, we've really got to turn the heat up, you know, because the, the stakes, it feels to me, have, have got to build and build. And I think originally our plan was we'd actually do a, a new town with a new set of, of uh, community service people and, and it would be all new. But I really love these characters and I really love this cast and, oh, and I've really just enjoyed this world that we've created for them and series two i think is really really fun because you've set up the world now you people know mm. the characters so we can just sort of have fun really uh putting the pressure on them so we've got stories for series three and and if if the people um who are higher up with the checkbooks you know say yes then then we're ready to go but fingers um, crossed no i'm really i'm really pleased because um i just i'm really i just really uh, the thing that was i was most pleased about in a sense with the first series was how much particularly on social media, how many people were responding to the characters and talking about the mm. characters. And they said they were rooting for characters that they probably wouldn't even like if they met them in real life. And yeah. that, I thought, was sort of the point of the show, in a way, was to try and take a disparate group of people that seemed like they were almost stereotypes on the surface and then peel back the layers and show what makes them yeah. tick and hopefully make you empathise with people that perhaps you wouldn't necessarily like if you met them. And I think that, as a sort of quite hopeful message about you know, what connects really us is. as humans and yeah. what um, the things we have in common, I thought was quite an optimistic message in these divided times. Yeah, I think because there's a, I suppose, I suppose you've kind of already said it, but there's a, there's a message of unity in a way Definitely. that everyone is so, everyone is so different, but actually you un unravel a few layers and actually they are more, they've got more in common than they realise. Absolutely. Or they, or at least at the beginning they admit to, you know, uh, realising. Well, I think that's the thing is I feel like there's a lot of TV drama and, and kind of cop things, which I think are great, but there's a lot of there's a lot of bleakness, like they, you know, the mm. worst of humankind, you know, and uh, grizzled detectives with drinking problems, and you know, dead women in lakes and things, and it's sort of, oh, blimey, you know. And so I thought, like the idea of kind of having a a crime genre story, which I love, but sort of not, but being a bit more optimistic rather than 
just relentlessly bleak. Just before you go, the 50-foot costume truck in the river, mm. was, was that real? Was that a PR stunt or was that a genuine... No, that was real. Yeah, no, it, it was. It was real. It real. Yes, yes. <laughs> I thought it'd be a great way of promoting the show, you know, like this truck is suddenly in Bristol, you know, Bristol Harbour, but no, it was, was a genuine thing. It was a genuine thing. The costume truck, as you say, wound up in, in Bristol Harbour. I think a lot of Bristolians mistook it for a racist statue. Um, but uh, no, we're not entirely sure how it wound up in the water, but thankfully no one was hurt. But uh, it was right at the end of the shoot, which had already been arduous. And um, yeah, all the costumes and stuff all oh, kind of you know, covered in, in sort of muddy water. But um, muddy water, good name for a musician. Yes, no, that was 100% real. And as you say, it did actually end up being, I'm not sure necessarily good publicity, but it, I was noticing it kind of getting used as a meme. <laughs> It's like, yeah. I think it was my first experience it got of a lot of traction. Yeah, sort of suddenly you'd sort of see the half submerged truck and it would say something like someone would have photoshopped like Brexit. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you know, whatever on the side. <laughs> yeah. And um I've never you know, I think if you tried to generate a meme, you couldn't. But thankfully that was that was sort of organic meme. Yeah, I could just picture a PR team saying, What can we do out of the box to right. you know promote this show, get it a bit of you know, a bit of press pickup? Right. Well we got the you know, the fifty grand uh, yeah. <laughs> truck. Let's just put that in the water. Yeah, right, know? right. Yeah. yeah. Well I think it did. I don't yeah. I just don't know that people necessarily associated it with the show. I think they saw the pictures of it, but I don't know if they realised it was our show. <laughs> I don't so I don't know how help, how helpful it was as publicity, but uh no, completely legitimate. Steve, it's been so good chatting with you. Thank you so much for coming on Plot Twist. Good luck with Series 2. Fingers crossed for more beyond that. And I uh, hope we can chat again soon. I appreciate it, mate. Thanks so much for having me. It was really good fun talking to you. Huge thank you to Stephen Merchant. Stephen <laughs> Merchant. Now, I had a bit of a mid-year review at the start. The only feedback you've got at this stage, Tom, is you don't go in and call someone Steve when they're Stephen Merchant without checking it first. Everyone, Fran, who has listened to the Ricky Gervais podcast will know he's Steve. That's it. The people who were calling him Steve were his friends on the podcast. <laughs> you are a listener, not a host. It's concerning you can't discern the difference of that. Like, you weren't on that podcast, so... I wasn't spirit. I wasn't spirit. We can, we can move on from that. Doesn't Steve Emergent have the most distinctive voice? Yeah, he has got a distinctive voice. I mean, probably not as distinctive as Christopher Walken, but it's, in UK terms, it's pretty distinctive. He was a really cool guy. He was. He had a nice balance. I liked how he, he kind of underplayed everything. He's done so many different projects as the interview kind of unraveled, you know, directing, starring in shows, producing, writing. But, you know, like the trailer, he just kind of underplayed it. I know. I, I did have a laugh at that when he was just like, oh, yeah, the trailer of my life would be so boring. And I'm like, well, if your life trailer would be boring, what about the rest of us? Yeah. I mean, the success that he's had. It's a gradual progression. Yeah, it's been a gradual progression and he hasn't had any huge barriers to overcome. So he feels like it's been an easy ride, but it's probably down to all his hard work and his grafting that's got him there. It's not just kind of fallen on his lap. And you always need something as a distraction, something in the background that can just sometimes just take away the stress. And in this case, online chess.
I actually can't play chess, Tom. You may be surprised to know I'm not very good at like patience and long term thinking. It's all about like immediacy for me. Instant gratification. So I'm very much, I take all the pieces immediately and I, I lose the game, unsurprisingly. I love that people were using office memes or office photos in that. They don't know who they're playing. I thought it was brilliant. Yeah, I know. Could you imagine? It was lovely to him, though, talk about his family, because I think a lot of the guests that we've spoken to have talked about the influence of their family and the upbringing and clearly mm. humour and bantering and kind of those relationships between people form the basis of his love of comedy. But also it was nice to hear him talk about how his family really nurtured his ambition. He said, go and do comedy, but have a backup option just in case it doesn't work out. Yeah, we, we've spoken to a few people, haven't we? I think Russell Kane, and it was like almost his family was saying, you know, you need to get a trade, you need to, because they didn't understand this world of entertainment. But, mm. and, and I don't think Steve's family, I don't think Stephen's family did either. <laughs> All right, look, how many times do you have to tell you? I know, I'm sorry. I don't think Stephen Merchant's family did either. Um, he spoke about Carl, obviously our first guest. Oh, I know. That's amazing. The way you talked about him as untapped gold, you can imagine them just having conversations and him just being like, this is amazing. What can we do with him? Because I think that's the thing with, with Stephen Merchant. He said this probably his favourite thing is the writing. So he is a very creative person. So then see somebody like Carl and see the opportunity mm. that that could bring. And obviously what they did with him in terms of the podcast and then An Idiot Abroad. Yeah. We just incredible. spoke about him so fondly, didn't he? With such warmth, yeah. like those yeah. experiences and, and how they all were together. Oh, it was just lovely. And we should talk about the outlaws. Obviously, we spoke about Christopher Walken a bit. I like what he said towards the end, kind of uh, connecting us. Yeah, it was lovely to him talk about kind of the writing process and how it's really like nutritious and stimulating. And imagine writing a show like that gives you so much opportunity to do it because you've got seven different people with different backgrounds that you can bring together. And that gives you so much opportunity to play with as a writer. Yeah, series two has just landed and you will be able to catch up on episodes on iPlayer. So, yeah, very excited for that. So thanks again to our good old pal, Stevie. Steve-o, <laughs> the Steve-doll. Smirch. <laughs> Just call him whatever you fancy, according to Tom. But no, that was the wonderful Steve Merchant. He was brilliant. Big thank you to him. And next week, we've got another corker, Christina Hendricks, star of Mad Ooh, Men. exciting. And Good Girls. Can't wait to chat to her. That's going to be a good one. So you can tune in and hear that and no more mid-year reviews. Thank goodness. Good to have you back, Fran. <laughs> we'll see you next week. Ciao, guys. Bye.